Today's interview is with Rahama Wright, who is a Ghanaian-American businesswoman, social entrepreneur, and the founder-CEO of Shailene International, which is a fair trade beauty brand and social impact enterprise. The company was born as a result of Rama's determination to serve a need that she recognized while in the Peace Corps in Ghana and enable women to create financial stability to care for themselves and their families. While offering premium Shea Butter body care products, the company also contributes to bigger conversations around social impact, financial empowerment, and the power of community with the nonprofit branch that supports women-owned Shea Butter cooperatives in Ghana. This is such a great story and a big lesson I'd like you to hear and take away from this is Rama's belief in her idea and her willingness to fail often and keep going because there was a need she recognized and she was determined to meet it. You're listening to The Inspired Wave, stories of everyday heroines, real life inspiration. I'm your host, transformational coach and connection catalyst, CJ Rivard. Join me weekly to hear real life inspiration and tips for tackling your life's challenges. Each week, you'll hear from a relatable woman who shares about her struggles and the tools she used to work through them. By being women of courageous action, vision, and ongoing evolution, each of us can create a ripple of positive impact. And together, we'll create a wave of change. Join us. Okay, well, welcome back, everyone. I'm so excited to introduce you and get started with today's guest, Rama Wright, who you just heard a little bit about. Welcome, Rama. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much (laughs) for being here. So this is just going to be such a great conversation. I'll try not to go off on too many tangents here. (laughs) Why don't you start by telling everyone where you are calling in from? So I am calling in from Washington, D.C. I've been a D.C. resident since 05 when I moved here after serving in the Peace Corps. That's a fun fact. (laughs) I think a lot of young people dream about serving in the Peace Corps, but don't actually do it. And how long did you do that? I know that was really impactful to where you are today. Yeah. Well, I always say it's never too late to join the Peace Corps. So if people are thinking about it, they should definitely look into it. I knew I was going to be a Peace Corps volunteer ever since high school. My dad did the Peace Corps, and so that's how he met my mom, and who is West African from Ghana. And so I grew up in a family where it was not only, you know, multicultural, multilingual, multi-ethnic, multiracial, but I always had like an eye for international affairs because of the fact that I grew up in the family I grew up in. So I knew from a very early age that I wanted to join the Peace Corps after college. And so my senior year, the beginning of my senior year, I started the application process. It takes about a year to get through the process. And so by the time I graduated, I had been assigned to a country and also assigned to a sector, which was the health sector. Mm -hmm. Wow. And what did you do while you were over there? I was assigned to a community health center and I worked with the nurse. And so we would primarily work with women on pre and postnatal care. So women and their babies. And so I spent quite a bit of time being kind of like her admin assistant, you know, checking people in, making sure with the children's like vaccination cards were like up to date and completed. 
and women would come in while they were pregnant to get their checkups and then when they had their babies and then after their babies were born, they would bring them back for them to get their vaccinations. And so that's what I focused a lot on. And then whatever sort of, you know, medical issue that people were dealing with, and they would come to the health center to, you know, to get services. But what I saw during that time was frequently when women would come into the health center, there would always be some sort of issue. And oftentimes they didn't have the money to pay for whether it was malaria pills for themselves or their kids or many different issues. And so seeing women coming in and not being able to just afford really basic medical services, you know, things that did not cost significant amount of money, at least in my, you know, American experience and looking at things from a dollar perspective, that's when I started wanting to understand more about how women in my community made money. You know, what were income generating activities? What were they doing that could give them access to the financial resources to help them live at a higher standard and help them take care of themselves and their children? And that's what took me down this journey to research and learn about shea butter and its connection to the lives of women in the Sahel area of Africa from east to west. And so what did you learn? Like, what were they doing with it or... What was it for the economy there? Or yeah. wondering how you got that spark. <laughs> yeah. So what I learned is that you can't get a shape product anywhere in the world. And an African woman wasn't a part of the process. They are integral to the shea butter value and supply chain. It is a fruit that grows in a tree exclusively in the Sahel region of Africa from east to west. So there are roughly 21 countries and approximately 120 million women who are part of this supply chain. And so what happens is that women are the harvesters. They're the ones that go out into the forest and they harvest this fruit. It isn't a cultivated tree. It's a tree that grows wildly. So they leave their, their villages, they walk out into the forest, they collect the fruit, and then they bring that back into their community. And then they extract out the nut and the nut is contained in the fruit, and then in the nut is a seed. They take out that seed, and then they hand process the oil they extracted out of that seed. And that's what shea butter is. It's wow. the oil that comes from the seed of the shea fruit. And so it's this very you know, multi-step process that women have been doing in Africa for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And they've passed down this practice from mother to daughter. So it's considered women's work which is rare for something to be culturally considered to be just something women do, because most of the time, even in agriculture, for the most part, you know, men and typically they're the ones that are making money from it, right? But when it comes to shea butter, it is something that is culturally accepted as women's way of making money. And the reason why is, is that in its most traditional use, it is a cooking oil. And so in a lot of these communities, there are gender roles. And so women are the ones cooking, they're the ones taking care of the kids. And so the fact that shea butter is so closely attached to cooking is part of the reason why it's considered women's work. And so as I was seeing all the stuff that women were doing to make this product, I saw a huge disconnect between what was being done locally and how that translated to global markets. 
And so, for example, how shea butter is produced in a small village in Africa mm-hmm. to what ends up on a shelf in our favorite retail store. Mm-hmm. There's a huge gap. And part of the issue is that women are unable to access the tools and the resources to benefit from that product that's sitting on shelf. And so seeing that disconnect and seeing that gap is why I started Shailene to create a bridge and help women take a natural, traditional practice and then turn it into something that can get them access to sufficient income so that they could take care of themselves and their families. Amazing. Well, that's an amazing idea. But where did you go or like, how did you hatch that idea? Did it occur to you while you were there? Tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit about the process of mentally birthing this business. And then we'll get into the actual, I guess, how it evolved after that. Well, I think I didn't really think a lot about it, to be honest. I didn't think about how hard it would be or whether or not it was achievable. I just thought, hey, these women are making a product. I know in America we use this product. Let's make it happen. Let's connect it to us. And it was it was something that started while I was a Peace Corps volunteer. So I started it as, as a Peace Corps volunteer, really just on the organizing. You know, at that time, I wasn't selling a product or anything like that. I was just helping to build capacity with the communities I was surrounded by. And so that meant helping like register cooperatives, getting women access to training. I really wasn't even thinking that I would eventually run a beauty business. That was not my thinking at all. It really was, these women are having a hard time making this product and getting it to market. Let me help them with that part. Over the years, it's certainly evolved and changed. And now we have a beauty business. But that wasn't my idea. My idea was never to run a beauty business. (laughs) It It was just to help women make a product and help them find buyers for it. That was it. (laughs) That you have, I guess. So how did you go about, or tell us what the process was like once you decided you were going to, you got back to the States Mm -hmm. and you were going to business or nonprofit, I think it was at first. You were going to launch a nonprofit to help these women. So again, I did not have this thinking of creating a beauty business. It was more, you know, how to help women access resources to create a product and then connect that product to market. So my initial idea was I'm going to create a nonprofit and I'm going to help them the supply side, meaning helping them on producing. So it was strictly supporting women's ability to take those seeds and turn it into shea butter. And so everything around training, getting access to equipment, building production facilities. So investing in infrastructure and actually creating the centers that they could work from. So I wasn't even touching the market side at all in the beginning. It was more so how do I create and support an ecosystem to support these women and support these groups? And so I worked on that for almost 10 years, just doing that, just focusing on the supply side. And, you know, it got to a point where we had these facilities, we had these cooperatives, these women were making shea butter and the shea butter would just sit there and no one's buying it. And what I had missed 
er, very early on was, yes, there were issues around organizing women, training them, the capacity and the training. That was one issue. But then there was also a market issue. Mm-hmm. Most of the shea that you see on that shelf that I was describing earlier is not coming from women in Africa. Less than 10% of all shea butter that is um, brought to market is actually coming from women in Africa. Where's it coming from? It's coming from large manufacturing facilities in Europe and Asia. And so the seed I was telling you about, which is critical to shea production, that's what leaves Africa in very large quantities. And so then what happens is that the women are essentially just in the role of harvester and picker. They're not in the processing and the manufacturing. And that's where you add value. And if you skip that part and don't get access to that part, that means you're making pennies versus being able to make dollars. So for example, if I give you a shea seed, you're going to be like, okay, this is cool. What do I do with it? (laughs) If I give you a bar of soap, we all know how to use soap, right? (laughs) There's that value addition. And so that's what the market up until then had not allowed for women to create value-added products. And part of the reason why is a lot of issues, infrastructure, right? The lack of infrastructure. In a lot of the communities that we work with, for example, there isn't electricity, there isn't running water. And so let's say, you know, you're a company, are you going to want to like build your business in a place where there's no electricity? Are you want to, you know, are you going to want to invest in creating that infrastructure before you run your business? And most companies, their whole idea is to get to profitability as soon as possible. They're not interested in building out, you know, the infrastructure, the facilities that's needed. And so for them, their solution is just give me the seeds. I'll take it to Europe. I'll take it to Asia. I'll process and I'll get my money as soon as I can. Because again, I had no business starting this business. My whole thing was like, we're going to build facilities. (laughs) We're going to help these women with ecosystem development. We're going to create, you know, so I spent so much time doing that. And then when it, when it finally clicked that, Hey, that's great that you're doing it. But if you don't have the market, you really won't help women with increasing their wages and increasing their income. And so that came later on. So let's go back a little bit to the amount of time and the obstacles. I mean, I understand it took a long time to get through this figuring out and doing, I mean, the business has morphed as well, but even mm-hmm. the beginning up ramp took a long time. Tell us a little bit about The challenges and your persistence. Mm -hmm. I know we were talking a little bit before and you never had a doubt that you were going to pull this off. (laughs) Talk to us a little bit. That was 23-year-old Rahma. (laughs) Yeah, she was very confident, overly confident. (laughs) It's good because, you know, at whatever, 40, you might have thought, that's a crazy idea. I I should do that. Right. And honestly, I think for me, very early on, it wasn't that I thought I could do it. I think it was more of this needs to be done. Mm -hmm. This is wrong. These women deserve to be able to take care of their children. They deserve to be able to pursue their dreams. They, they, this is a right. This is a human rights issue. That's how I looked at it. So it wasn't 
coming from, you know, I have the ability to pull this off. It's that there is no option because it's totally unfair that these women for generations have had to deal with cycles of poverty within their communities. And, and they have I, this rich. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that that was my driver in the beginning, in my youth. Um, <laughs> and it was, you know, it was just like, yeah, this is so wrong. I can't believe I saw this. I can't believe no one is talking about this issue. I need to do something. And I think because of that, I think if, if I had started this because I wanted to start a beauty business, I would have given up in year two, for sure. Yeah, I would have 100% because it's not easy. It's incredibly challenging. And for me early on, a lot of the hurdles I had to, to jump over was when I was young. And so it was hard to get people to take me seriously. It was hard to not be seen as naive and idealistic. And so that was one of the things that I always had to feel. I had this tremendous pressure of always having to show up incredibly professional, you know, knowing everything, being able to answer all the questions and that pressure of just like not looking young, not looking like I didn't know what I was doing, you know, all of that initially was, was a challenge. And then of course, I didn't have access to money. So money is a huge barrier for a lot of different businesses in all stages, right? It wasn't mm-hmm. just something that I was dealing with, but the fact that in the beginning, you know, I was working multiple jobs just to like pay for my idea. And at the time it was in 501c3 nonprofit. And so I would like work, get some money and then like send it over to the cooperative so they could like buy a piece of equipment or do a training when I was in DC. So, you know, I would get my friends to like help me with like a fundraiser or, you know, and we would fundraise like $500 or $1,000. This is very like little, little pots of money and then send it over to do something. And so it was very, very grassroots, <laughs> very community driven. It did not look like a business whatsoever. And it wasn't until I, you know, in 2013, when I was trying to get our products in Whole Foods. So imagine from 2005 to 2013, mm-hmm. um, and I was developing, you know, developing a product, trying to develop product lines that I realized I really need to get money. Like I won't be able to like keep doing this the way that I'm doing it. It's just going to take forever. (laughs) And that was when I got my first round of seed capital from a venture fund in New York. And in order to do that, I couldn't take on the capital as a nonprofit. It had to come through a business structure. And so that's when I launched the business side of Shayaline, which was Mm -hmm all focused on the marketing. So building and creating the product and then marketing it and getting it into retail, selling it to consumers. So that's when the pivot happened. And for those of you who are like listening and don't know what a social enterprise is, essentially a social enterprise is a business that has a social mission. And so Shayaline is a social enterprise. We're a business, but the reason why we're in business is to address the social issue of African women being able to generate living wages from their labor in the shea butter industry. So it's very, very focused in this very specific market and specific product and figuring out how to elevate the role of these women in everything that we do from how we make the product, how we talk about it, 
how we share the stories of the women in our communities. Everything is centered on on that mission. But I will say this, because we're a business, we also have to solve a problem for our customer. So the, the problem we solve for our customer is dryness. We basically moisturize you. That's what we do. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful thing. So I just want to pull out from what you just elaborated on. This was no overnight success. <laughs> it's an amazing, amazing, highly impactful thing that this company does, but this did not happen overnight. And I think that so, so many of us have these ideas and then we lack the belief and nah, I could never do that. <laughs> someone, you know, if it was meant to be done, someone would have done it by now. Whoa. You know, if it could be done, someone would have done it by now. I could never do that. Or then you get into it a year, two, three, five, and you think, I can't do this. This isn't meant to be. And I guess I just want to stress from this story how it really reiterates successful people are persistent. Mm. You know, there was really a burning desire here, like Napoleon Hill talks about in Think and Grow Rich. Mm-hmm. A burning desire and a lot of persistence because this was not, I just, I can't even imagine how many people would have walked away from this, but look at the number of lives. So can you, because I think that was before we hit record, how many women are you touching the lives of right now that are part of your infrastructure over in Africa? Yeah. So we work in Northern Ghana across 14 different communities, and there are roughly 800 women in our supply chain. And so we do everything. Our entire model is seed to shelf. So what we do from the beginning, when that fruit is plucked from the tree to the processing and then getting the shea on, you know, sea freight to be brought over to the U.S. and then making our soaps, our creams, all of that, and then selling it, we're part of that entire process. So it's an integrated supply chain. And by doing that, we increase women's income five times their country's minimum wage. And for me, that is the most important part of the work that we do is increasing women's income. Because we all know this, CJ, we all know this. When a woman has more money, she has access to choices. That's it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to choose this now because now I have the resources to. I was just thinking when you said five times minimum wage, I bet at least some of those women can now choose not to work quite as much, you know, instead of just constantly more, 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 they can actually enjoy their families and not work as many hours, perhaps. The other thing is they might not even work for us anymore. They can do other things. I'll give you an example of this. Uh My first job, junior of high school, junior year of high school was at McDonald's. It was my first, I had never, you know, I I mean, outside of like chores and like working from my Mm -hmm. aunt, like I had never shown up at a building, clocked in, had to do, you know, tasks and then get a check in two weeks. That was my first introduction to working. And I love that job. I really did. I did gain 15 pounds, which I'm not very happy about. 
Because <laughs> I ate a, I ate a fish fillet every time I had a shift. <laughs> but that's another story. But it taught me certain things about being an employee, about showing up, about responsibility. You know, I was able to open my first checking account. You know, all of that. But now I'm somewhere else in life. And that's the way I look at this. Producing shea butter should not be the last job a woman has. Mm. It should be a stepping stone to something else. And we have stories of that where women will work in the cooperative, they'll save money, and then they'll start something else. And that's, that's the way I look at this. This is a stepping stone, a tool, because the thing is, is that you don't need to have, you know, a college degree to produce shea butter. You don't need to have super technical skills to do it, but it can give you that bump, that step up. And if you want, you know, we had, for example, one of our women never went to school and she was able to pay for getting reading and writing like for adults. And now she, I was so proud of her when she sent me her first text to me and she wrote it out by herself. That's what we're doing with our business model. And so I just got super excited about that. <laughs> that's getting me teary. That's, that's incredible because, well, that's the other thing. You can read a story, but when you, you know, see or have evidence of a real person behind that story, getting a leg up and changing their lives. That's just, that's just incredible. Yeah. So it's, also, a, okay. it's just a true story of persistence and belief making a really big impact in the lives of others. I just, yeah. I love it. We've actually also had women come to the U.S. and go into the stores that sell our products. And for me, that's really important because as I've shared, I was a Peace Corps volunteer. You know, I have the privilege of having an American passport, which gives me access to a lot in this world. I can pretty much get a visa anywhere I want to go. Getting a visa in other places of the world to come to the U.S. is incredibly difficult. <laughs> and so a lot of times people are part of supply chains. They'll never get an opportunity to see the market side. They'll never be able to meet a buyer. They'll never be able to meet a customer who purchased their product because there's so many barriers, right? Mm -hmm. But there's also just distance, like getting on a plane, going across the Atlantic Ocean, coming to New York, like all of that is a lot. And so for me, it was very important that our cooperative members, that some of them would have the opportunity to come and walk into a Whole Foods and meet our Whole Foods buyer or, you know, come to DC and like meet someone who'd been purchasing the product on our website. Because for me, that is true transformation because I can tell you what the experience is, but if you experience it for yourself, mm -hmm. if you, you know, get a chance to share your story in front of an audience versus me telling your story, that is the difference maker. Yeah. And I think too, it's that visibility and the voice so that the women themselves can feel like, oh, I really understand why we're doing all of this work, but also how I fit into this entire process. It's incredible. Wow. So we talked about the business evolving. So what's going on for you now? Where are you? How many years in? <laughs> and are you all over the US? And of course, we'll get your website and however people want to learn more. Yeah. I'm sure they will. So for 2022, I'm very excited about 2022. 
like so many small businesses across the world, 2020 was very hard with COVID. Prior to, you know, COVID impacting us on the retail side. So we were in Whole Foods in three regions. We had an amazing partnership with MGM Resorts where we supplied their spa. And then we had a lot of retail locations in the D.C. metro area, including at the the airport, which was phenomenal. Everything that I've described has been impacted by COVID. (laughs) The airport shut down, not the airport, but our retail in the airport shut down because of travel bans and everything that was happening in the first, you know, three months of COVID. And then several of our retail shops in D.C. also closed down. And so... 2020, the latter part of 2020 through 2021 was rebuilding, honestly, mm-hmm. getting grants, getting a PPP loan, revamped our packaging. And so we did a packaging refresh and just rebranded. And I'm really excited to share that um, last year we started our business with Macy's. And so we have been working with Macy's. It'll be a year in March, and it's been a phenomenal retail partnership for us. We also, even though MGM, we had to pause because they're in entertainment and their spa shut down for a very long period of time. They'll be reopening. And so we'll be re-engaging that business as well in 2022. And the global media firm, Meredith, they are, have given us a grant to help us with media and amplification. And so that's happening as well this year. Wow. So it is a very exciting year. It's kind of like, it's not a relaunch, but it's a new beginning for the business. People can find us through Macy's. They can find us on our website. And if they are in the DC metro area, we have a couple of cool pop-ups that we're doing and they can find those locations on our website as well as our social. But the biggest, biggest project that I'm so excited about for this year is we're actually building a manufacturing facility in Washington, DC. And so we are creating the very first makerspace for indie businesses. And it came about because I was thinking about kind of where I saw myself as a leader in this entire industry. And frequently people reach out to me asking me for advice, you know, wanting 30 minutes of my time. Can I help them with X, Y, Z? And I love it when people reach out to me and I want to be able to help, but it also takes up a lot of time. And I realized there is no community that people can access in the U.S. that can help them build their beauty businesses. There are programs like conferences and, you know, digital like webinars and things like that, but a physical location, like a shared kitchen for food Mm -hmm. entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. There are food entrepreneurs everywhere who can access shared kitchen spaces. In beauty, we don't have that. And so people, you know, when I started my business, I Googled everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that we can offer more than just Google's great. We can offer more than just kind of like putting a shot out in the dark and figuring, you know, trying to figure it out as you go. It's taken me so long, you know, over 15 years because everything was a trial and error process. Mm -hmm. I would try this and it wouldn't work out. I'd try something else. So I'd try something at work, but then I forgot a piece of it. And then it took me back 10 steps. 
What if we had a physical location for people to come, a teaching lab where you can come as an entrepreneur and learn how to do formulations, talk to a chemist, learn about packaging. I made so many errors with my packaging. My first packaging for my bar of soap was construction paper, CJ. I got a construction paper, printed out the label on my inject printer, and then I put it on with a piece of tape, scotch tape. And then I was like, I'm going to get this into a store. Did I get that into a store? I absolutely did not. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So we, yeah, so that's my, that's my next kind of like 3.0 and it's in partnership with DC government. They've actually given us a very large grant to build this space. And congratulations. That's so exciting. (laughs) I'm very excited about it. (laughs) I I was just thinking the other thing that comes to mind as you talking about all of this, you were definitely someone who lives the progress, not perfection. Start before you're, you know, (laughs) overthink it, you know, just do it. And you do. You have, and there's just so many lessons here that I hope people are pulling out because it's great. I mean, you did not 15 years ago have immediate success, but you were just such an inspiring leader now. And look at what you're doing now, like in your own community in the US, you're gonna be helping other people in the beauty business not just the women in Africa. Yeah, exactly. So many lives. So it's just incredible. Yeah. So I really appreciate you sharing your story and all of your time yeah. today. Do you have any parting advice maybe that you'd like to drive home to our listeners today? We've covered a lot of territory, but yeah, from your I lessons learned. Yeah, I think I want to go back to this idea of believing and having confidence and you know, where we get that from, or, you know, just starting before you really have the idea fully formed. And I just want to echo that that is so important in terms of, I think so often we are afraid that we're going to try something out and it's not going to work and it's just going to be so devastating. So that is what prevents us from even trying. But I actually think What's more devastating is not trying. What's more devastating, because then you're going to live life not being who you fully are capable of being. And you're always younger. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of the reason why I, some of it is just my personality, but I also think being the eldest of five kids and growing up in the family I grew up in that, you know, I had responsibility from the age of 12. I was like, cooking full-on meals for my family, doing laundry, you know, being a second mom to my younger siblings. And so I think that, I don't think my mom was intentionally trying to create leadership skills in me. (laughs) She just needed another hand and a helping hand. (laughs) But by doing that and really giving me so much responsibility at a young age, and I think there's a balance. I'm not saying people should do this. (laughs) There was an upside. Right, right. I think it did. Because I remember, you know, going to college and meeting people who'd never done laundry before. And I was just like, what? I've been doing laundry since I was <laughs> That doesn't happen in large families. but Right. It just can't. <laughs> your, your mom can't do laundry for six people, like seven people, you know. And so I think that that did definitely create this like 
personality where I just took on a lot and I didn't even think about it because I just have always had to do that. But I'm thankful for it because I've never questioned whether or not I should do what I believe or what that feeling that you have when we all have it. Mm-hmm. It was never, I never thought to myself to push it down. If I feel that I need to work in this area because I'm seeing something mm-hmm. and I think that it needs to change, I never would be like, oh no, don't do that. Or what if I fail? Yeah. Or what if I failed? That didn't even come. But the thing is, is that by not trying, you've already failed. Mm-hmm. But I, the other thing is failure that's how you learn what needs to be done differently. I mean, from the sounds of your story, there were a lot of failures mixed in there. You just kept going. Yeah. Only happens when you stop, right? Yeah, no. I I literally, like, some people are like, you've been doing this for 15 years? What is like? I failed all the time. (laughs) Literally, it wasn't whether or not I was going to fail. Yeah. So the thing is, is like, I would rather fail doing what I believe in than just fail. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And so I really hope that people, when hearing this, they just know that it's not going to be perfect, but life isn't isn't meant to be perfect. And I have learned more doing this than I could have learned in any other capacity, I believe, you know, working for a Fortune 500 or, you know, Mm -hmm. multilateral organization. Like I have learned so much and not only like the tactical skills of building a business, but just about me. Like, what are my leadership strengths? What aren't my leadership strengths? What do I need to like deal with and that I haven't dealt with? And one of the things I feel like we need to talk more about is the emotional and psychological and spiritual journey you go on when you take on this, when you make this choice to do that thing that's telling you do this. Mm -hmm. Because there have been so many moments where this journey has actually been my faith walk, you know, and I'm a practicing Christian, but I believe in all faith, <laughs> but that is my, you know, that is my choice. And that is what resonates with me the most. But, you know, when I read certain things that talk about faith and, you know, faith is believing in something you don't see mm-hmm. and how do I practice that? Well, I am by literally believing in something I don't see every day. <laughs> And, um, Got you here. Yeah. Yeah. And just also too, uh, you know, I'll just finish here too. Like it just reveals so much of like who you are to yourself versus who you think you should be based on everything else. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. Who you really, yeah. Because you're, yeah, you're on that growth journey. You have to be because you've been, Sounds like you're a whole adult life, stretching yourself out of your comfort zone, doing things you've never done before. Yeah. Like your whole adult life, you've (laughs) gotten comfortable being uncomfortable. Exactly. And that is a big growth journey. Good for you. Yeah. It's just incredible. Well, thank you so much again for spending your time with us and sharing your story. And I don't think I heard you say your website. We want to send you some traffic and we will include it in the show notes. So where should people go to find out more and check out your products? Absolutely. They can go to shayaleen.com, S-H-E-A-Y-E-L-E-E-N.com. 
And Yaline is actually from the language Bambara, which is the language I learned as a Peace Corps volunteer, and it means light and hope. I love that. Thank you for mentioning that. I meant to ask you where the name came from, and there <laughs> you go. That's beautiful. Thank you. Perfect. <laughs> Can't wait to check it out. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in today. I know there was more than one jewel you can take away from today's conversation and make it a great day. If you're like most women, you have a big dream on your heart and really wanna make a positive impact in the lives of others. But self-doubt, fear, or other limiting beliefs often get in your way. What many women don't realize is that the one thing that can catapult them forward is deepening their self-love and self-esteem. So I have a free ebook for you that's really going to help you in this area. It's called 30 Days to Deepen Self-Love, and you can download it at the link in our show notes. Enjoy.